Good evening, everybody. Uh, before we do anything else this evening, let's just come to God again uh, in prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue to be in our midst this evening, that we would have a tangible sense of your presence with us, that Holy Spirit, you would be so at work within our hearts, you would be helping us to say amen to the word of God, amen that it is good, amen that it is true, amen that it is the best, that it is the right word for us to hear this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, I would encourage you, if you could please, to keep that uh, passage in Galatians open, Galatians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 26. We are going to come to it, but the first thing I'd actually like to do is come out here with my GP hat on rather than any preacher hat, because what I'd really like to talk to you all about is my bad back. You see, I spend my whole week... Every day, 28 people will come in to sit in the chair in front of me, and they will tell me about their physical and their mental problems. And very often, one of the things that they will talk to me about is their bad backs. So I now have a captive audience of maybe about 100 people sitting in the pews in front of me, and I would like to tell you about my bad back. Anybody who has read the most recent issue of the Kirkpatrick magazine uh, will hopefully have been able to read about what some of the young and not-so-young men of our congregation will get up to on a Thursday evening. We meet together uh, in the Ballymacarrett Hall on the Newton Arge Road, and there a five-a-side football match is keenly contested. Now, there are a lucky few, the young guns, who they're probably not yet even at their peak. These guys are in their prime, and they are able to wow the rest of us with their speed and their skill and their grace. But I'm afraid for the majority, there's probably no hope for the rest of us that it's ever going to get any better. The older we get, the better we were. The spirit may still be willing, but the flesh is weak. In our mind's eye, we can still take that 30-yard pass with a gentle caress of our foot, turn on a sixpence and beat our opponent, and dispatch the ball to the top corner of the net. That's what happens in our mind's eye. The reality is a series of toe pokes, clumsy challenges, and a whole host of calamitous goals which if the television cameras had been on, the only appropriate place for it would be you've been framed. So the way that I and, and several others, to, if, we're, if we're honest, have had to come to terms with our obvious lack of physical ability is by substituting speed and skill and finesse by charging around with twice as much energy and enthusiasm as we probably should. And therein lies the problem. 
you know, I have had more injuries and knocks and niggles playing on a Thursday night with the boys from Kirkpatrick than at any other stage in my less than illustrious sporting career. And so it was the morning after a very vigorous game, Friday morning, trying to ease my stiff body out of bed and ping, I felt it, my back muscles went. Those of you who are in the know to whom it has happened will be familiar with that horrible searing red-hot pain as it spreads across the lower back muscles as they go into spasm. And if you're really unlucky, well, that pain will work its way down one of your legs like a rod of lightning. The thought of getting out of bed, the challenge of getting into clothes, well, it seems almost insurmountable. Never mind trying to wedge yourself into the car, find a comfortable position so you can stop off in Tesco's on the way to work and buy enough painkillers to get you through the day. That was the first day in my life where I had my bad back. But the thing about a bad back is that once it has happened, it is pretty much always going to be with you. There are things that you can do to try and stop it coming back in the future, maybe as frequently as it might. There are also things that you can do to try and reduce its impact when it does give you a twinge. But the likelihood is that it's always going to be there. So you may rightly be wondering, well, what's that all about? The thing that Paul is writing to the Galatians about has been described by some as the church's bad back. It was a huge problem for the early church in Paul's day, and it is still rife with us today. You see, there are two ways that the, the devil can knock the Christian out of the saddle. The first is obvious, and we all know about it. It's notorious sin, and it's the way of the flesh. It is rebelling against a holy and sovereign God and choosing to go our own way. And the pages of the Bible are full of warnings about living this kind of life. But the other way that we are brought down is, well, it's more subtle. It's legalism. And if it wasn't a problem, we wouldn't have Galatians. We wouldn't need Hebrews in our Bible. And there would be huge chunks missing out of, well, pretty much every book in the New Testament. Jesus was crucified by legalism's devotees. Paul's ministry was plagued by it. And folks, we don't have to search too hard or long to see it in our church life today. Legalism is rife. Legalism is lethally plausible because it almost seems right. But legalism is sin. And legalism is the church's bad back. Paul the Apostle is on a mission to haul the Galatians out of the law into which they are sliding and back into the world of grace that he introduced them to. To help us define the nature of the problem that we're dealing with, let's quickly have a look back at Psalm 24. And I want you to imagine, as we think about this psalm, a huge choir and the choir is divided up into two halves, and one half of the choir sings out a question, and the other half sings the reply. Well, in Psalm 24, the first half cries out the question, 
Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Now, if we and Kirkpatrick were in that answering choir, well, our natural answer in these affirming days would probably be something like, well, anybody can. You're all welcome. Just come as you are. But that's not the answer that we get in the psalm. It's actually much more sobering answer that the choir in the psalm gives us. They sing, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. You see, this is not such good news. I'm not like that. In fact, there's not anybody in Kirkpatrick who's even a little bit like that. And if anybody does feel that that verse accurately describes them, well, I think there's maybe two problems. First of all, there's too small a view of the seriousness of our own sin. And secondly, the view of the holiness of God is not nearly big enough. See, these Galatian Christians were being duped. They were being infiltrated by Jewish Christians who were not denying what Jesus had done for them, but they were denying that it was the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice. Accept Jesus, yes, of course, but you'll really only be accepted yourself with Jesus, plus our own brand of rules, rituals, circumcision, and, well, whatever else we may choose to add to that list. Dominic Smart is a minister, Church of Scotland minister, who I got to know in my days in Aberdeen. And he put it like this. If you try and use good works as a ladder to climb your way up into God's presence, you will, by your sin, break each rung of the ladder as you try and climb it. If you try and use good works as a ladder to climb your way up into God's presence, you will, by your sin, break each rung of the ladder as you try and climb it. The Galatians were unwittingly putting their trust in a broken ladder, and they were neglecting and ignoring the one whose hands were clean for them, whose heart was pure for them, and in whom there was no idolatry. So Paul was dismayed about this. He was angry with his Galatian brothers and sisters, sad that they were being sucked back into this legalistic way of life. They were living out that if they found themselves overdrawn at the bank of God, they knew that they would have to go out, carry out a few more good works, put a few more pounds back in the bank to bring the balance up again and make themselves acceptable to the holy God. Now, as Christoph described it the last time we had a night out with the Galatians, this is not an alternative gospel. This is not a superior gospel. This is anti-gospel. The word used elsewhere is that the gospel has been perverted, which means that it has been turned right around to make up for what is supposed to be lacking in God's work we bring works that are riddled with our own sin and mixed motives. Friends, to live this way sets us on an awful and endlessly turning treadmill. It is not to be recommended, 
And worst of all, it's futile. It doesn't work. It doesn't get us any closer to God. And that is why Paul is so angry, so passionate in his letter to the Galatians. The gospel is at stake here. In chapter 2 and 3, Paul has made a weighty defense of the gospel by arguing its case in terms of doctrine and theology. Paul now moves away from argument to a phase of application and appeal. He wants to point out to the Galatians the consequences of their proposed actions. He takes some time reflecting on past relationships, on the Galatians' previous loyalty to him. And at times, he begins disparaging the agitators who are speaking against him and against the gospel message. Well, the first thing that Paul takes on in the passage that we've read this evening in chapter 3, verse 26, is he wants to remind the Galatians exactly where it is they stand. All sons of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. As Eugene Peterson writes in his introduction to Galatians in the translation, The Message, when men and women get their hands on religion, one of the first things that they often do is turn it into an instrument for controlling others, either putting or keeping them in their place. The history of such religious manipulation and coercion is long and tedious. That, I think, is what these Jewish Christians were at. They were coming after Paul and confusing the Galatians. Perhaps these Jewish Christians were those who would have risen early in the morning and given thanks to God. Thank you that I was born a Jew. Thank you that I was born free. Thank you that I was born a man. Rubbish, says Paul. That's all rubbish. God's kingdom does not allow for hierarchies, pride, or superiority. We are all clothed in Christ. That is our new identity. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male or female. You are all one in Christ. And Paul goes on to remind them where it all started. You see, there was a tendency at this time to put the cart before the horse, to think that things all started with the law, and then along comes Christ with this new idea of grace through faith. That's rubbish too, says Paul. He brings up Abraham. Hundreds of years before Moses received the Ten Commandments, the law on Mount Sinai, Abraham had already met with God. It was he who was given the promise. It was he that was fulfilled in Jesus. It was he who first trusted God by faith. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Believe in Christ and you are to count yourself among the heirs promised to Abraham. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. And remember that promise of grace came a long time before the law. Well, Paul wants to see the Galatians to see the consequences of this anti-gospel in their lives. And he uses the analogy of a child coming of age. This was a big deal in these times. Reaching the legal age would have involved a public ceremony. Uh, You would have been given a new robe to wear. And there would be a whole host of new privileges 
including being able to take hold of your inheritance. Before this emancipation, whether you were a child of the house, the heir in waiting, or a slave, it didn't matter. Neither was free. Neither had any advantage over the other. Verse 2 tells us that both were subject to guardians and trustees until the, the time set by the Father. I think the message translation makes the start of chapter 4 a little bit easier, a little bit clearer to understand. So as descendants of Abraham and as heirs of the promise, as long as the heir is a minor, he has no advantage over the slave. Though legally he owns the entire inheritance, he is subject to tutors and administrators until whatever date the father has set for emancipation. But the emancipation has come. They have gone from being heir in waiting to claiming their identity as a son with all the privileges that that confers. Jesus has done this. God's son, born of woman, born under the law, the only perfect man and the only one capable of redeeming those kidnapped by the law. And so with sonship comes the spirit. And with that, this new relationship that allows us to cry out, Abba, Father, a child of God with complete access to the inheritance, access to God himself. And so, of course, Paul is urging the Galatians not to go back, back to the old way of a curtain, the holy of holies, separating mankind from God. Why go back to living the life of a slave when you can live free as a child of God. He says, before you didn't know any better, you lived in slavery to so-called gods, to rules, to regulations, to hierarchies. But they have experienced this new life. They realize that God does not coerce or bully from without, but he has set us free from within. Paul's heart is breaking because he sees them giving up this free life and going back to a life of slavery. You see, not that there's anything wrong with the law itself. We need laws. To be honest, we're not fit or safe to be left down here without them. The problem comes in believing what the law will do for you, to make you acceptable to God. For the Galatians, the temptation was too great to trust in actions that they could do and see, observing special days, months, seasons, and years, rather than putting their whole trust in God, who is unseen. Why does Paul care so much? In verse 11, he says, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. He cares because it's personal. These are his friends. He had been with them for a long time. And they are slipping away. But much more than that. He cares because the whole of the gospel is at stake. Everything God has been doing, opening up salvation to the Gentiles, could be wiped out by this anti-gospel. In verse 12, Paul takes it on to appeal on a more personal level. Urging his Galatian brothers and sisters to remember their past relationship with him. He reminds them that it wasn't part of the original plan 
that he should end up with them and preach the gospel. It, it hadn't been on his itinerary. Paul limped into town, worn out and broken, suffering from some unknown illness. It's one thing to welcome in an unexpected guest. Paul finds it all the more impressive that they were so quick to welcome him. Carrying with him the baggage and disability of his illness, he clearly felt that he should have been much more of a burden to them. But instead we see in verse 14, even though my illness was a trial to you, you, wel- you did not treat me with contempt. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. It started off when the Galatians were bending over backwards to do all they can to help Paul and to welcome him. But something has changed dramatically in the relationship because they are now setting themselves up as enemies of Paul and the message that he brought. What has happened to your joy, says Paul? It's not just their doctrine which is being distorted, but they themselves are being distorted too. They have lost the the ability to experience joy. Once the message had been a delight to them, put smiles in their faces and a spring in their step. But now God's God's word is a weight around their shoulders. In a fellowship where law has squeezed out grace, it doesn't matter which passage is preached on, the message is always the same. You're failing. You're not doing very well. You should be doing better. It's our hope that uh, Kirkpatrick would be a self-authenticating church. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that people looking from the outside in would see disciples of Jesus Christ. They would see a community of people who love one another, who serve each other, whose lives are marked by joy. That's what I mean by self authenticating. Well, a miserable and loveless church is about as convincing and self-authenticating as a bold man turning up on your doorstep and trying to sell you hair-restoring cream. Grace brings joy. Living under the weight of the law will bring you nothing but misery. Paul now turns his attention to the agitators who have so changed his once loving relationship with the Galatians and made him an enemy to them. They have discredited Paul and the gospel and their selfish motive again, as Peterson puts it, is to strong arm these young Christians into giving up their free life in Jesus Christ, putting these Jewish Christians back in the driving seat. They want to herd them back into the corral of religious rules and regulations. These men have zeal, all right, but not in a good way. And remember, the Apostle Paul knows more than anybody about misplaced religious zeal. As a Pharisee of Pharisees, he was an extremist 
for the law. In fact, he held it so dearly that anyone who didn't comply to the law, in particular his interpretation of it, was pursued and persecuted. And so on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul met with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was converted, turned right around. And that was the beginning of him becoming not an extremist for law, but working his way to becoming an extremist for grace. Surely he would know better than anyone. He was zealous for the law without equal. But all of this was futile. He realized that no amount of rule-keeping could take him even one tiny step closer to the holy God. And so Paul closes with words that, well, probably only a man could utter. He says, I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He just can't understand it. He's dumbfounded. He wishes that uh, he could come back and visit the Galatians. He wants to be able to look them in the eyes, to see his friends again. He wants to talk plainly face to face. And he wants to ask them the question, what are you doing? Why are you giving up the wonderful gospel that I have preached? Why are you running from the embrace of grace back into the clutches of the law? Now, the more astute and practiced Presbyterians among you will know that I have not made a very good job of this sermon because we've gone through the passage and by this point I should be going through my three points all beginning with the letter P as your take-home message. Well, I'm sorry, I haven't made any points beginning with the letter P and I haven't even given you a take-home message just yet. I'll try and do better next time. There's really only one thing that I want us to take away from tonight's passage, and I suppose from the whole of Paul's letter to the Galatians. I want us all to make a commitment to living together the free life in Jesus Christ. That we would keep learning to love each other because we know just how much Christ has loved us that we'd keep learning how to serve each other because we're learning from the servant king. That we'd never be here judging our brothers and sisters in Kirkpatrick, but leaving all of that to God, never totting up the works and behaviors of our neighbors to make sure that their standards meet ours. Grace is a very beautiful but very fragile thing. Let us make a commitment together to strive to protect it. But as we've already seen, legalism, we think, is the church's bad back. So it may always be with us to some extent. But when it does flare up for us in the future, when it gives us a little bit of a twinge, let's together quickly reach for the remedy to align ourselves under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. To remember that he paid that price that we could never pay. And because of him, we are clear of all of the charges 
and all of the subsequent condemnation that the law could impose. We're going to close tonight uh, by celebrating Jesus. We're going to sing Jesus all for Jesus. And the bit that I want you to look out for when you should really sing out is the line, for it's only in your will that I am free. It is only in your will that I am free. Singing those wonderful words and letting their truth sink in is something that has made the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end ever since I learnt this song as a teenager. It is the realization of grace and it is so much better than the law. And then a slightly radical and potentially law-breaking step for us here in Kirkpatrick. As we stand, I think we'll try and sing it twice through.